Slow Burn Media, an evergreen podcast, presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Today marks 33 years since four children and three adults were targeted in a mass shooting at a bowling alley in Las Cruces, one of the most heinous crimes ever committed in that city. From our New Mexico mobile newsroom, four of the victims, three of them children, died that day, while a fifth victim died several years later. The case remains unsolved, and a $25,000 reward is being offered for information leading to an arrest. The mass shooting happened the morning of February 10, 1990. Police say two men stormed into the bowling alley on East Amador, forced seven people into an office, shot them at close range, and set the office on fire. They stole $5,000 before they left behind. We believe that there's somebody out there who knows that uncle whoever was or cousin whoever had came into money around that time and maybe they bought a car maybe they bought something maybe they did something with that money maybe they paid off a debt whatever the case is we want to hear from that person if they haven't talked to us yet uh, or if maybe they have a new recollection of events around that time period please give us a call abc7's leloba setshiro will have more about the anniversary coming up on abc7 at five and six Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed, episode 223. I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media, Evergreen Podcasts, and Killer Podcast production. On this week's episode, we are going to take a look back at a case from 1990 that remains unsolved to this day, a quadruple murder which has become known as the Las Cruces Bowling Massacre. But before we dive into the details of that case, there are actually a few notable events from the world of true crime this week. And let's start with the biggest news of the week, and that would be uh, a little thing out of Idaho that could be bad or it could be nothing. But the new documents released in the case of the Idaho Four charging Brian Koberger with the murders of the four innocent victims on the college campus last fall... Uh, apparently, the documents center on an officer who investigated the murders. Prosecutors have shared potential, big word here, Brady Giglio material with the defense. That's big news because, as we know, Brady material is something that can derail a case. So, fingers crossed that this is nothing more than just a few clerical issues, and maybe this isn't going to affect the overall outcome or the trial itself so let's just uh wait and see on that one but uh yeah i mean this is a uh, one of those things where you have an internal investigation and one of the investigators in the Koberger case is the subject of that investigation so that is also um it's just not a good look and there's another reason that Koberger's you know attorneys they're likely to try to sow doubt about the DNA left on the knife sheath. And that's what they were saying. And that was according to CNN. Now in other news, there were a few cold cases this week that were solved. So there was a 34 year old case that was solved when police traced the DNA evidence from a licked envelope. And according to CNA, there was a triple homicide committed 50 years ago that had been solved after a Watauga County Sheriff's office in North Carolina received information revealed by a Georgia inmate during a visit with his son. Apparently in 1972, a man and his wife had 
gone with a neighbor to check on her parents and brother in Boone during a snowstorm when they found the three victims brutally murdered, according to the news release. Now, the case remained unsolved for nearly five decades, but based on interviews with the son of the infamous killer in Georgia, authorities now believe Bryce Durham, 51, Virginia Durham, 44, and Bobby Durham, 18, were killed by, quote, Dixie Mafia hitmen. In 2019, Shane Burt was at the White County Sheriff's Office in northern Georgia being interviewed for a book about crimes in the state when he related a story about his father that had told, he had told him during a prison visit. Now, Burt said that he had a close bond with his father, Billy Sunday Burt, who died in prison in 2017, and he was serving a sentence for murder. So it was a bad guy anyway. But the son said that his father had told him about taking part in killing three people in the North Carolina mountains during a heavy snowstorm. And that's, again, according to the news release. According to Burt, his father said the group had almost got caught. Now, after the revelation, the White County Sheriff's Office contacted Watauga County Sheriff's Office with the new information, and the men responsible for the killings were identified as Billy Sunday Burt, Bobby Jean Gaddis, and Charles David Reed. Oh, and Billy Wayne Davis as well. Now, Billy Wayne Davis, the comic, probably would not like that. But apparently that's his name, so that is what it is. So the men were part of the loosely organized network known as the Georgia-based Dixie Mafia, which is thought to have engaged in, quote, dozens of violent crimes in and across the region throughout the 1960s and 1970s. The show Crime Capsule that I produce, we've actually covered that case or a number of cases from the Dixie Mafia that are worth checking out. Also from CNN, after more than three decades of questions and grief, Tamika Reyes finally knows who killed her mother. Anna Kane was 26 when her body was found on October 23, 1988, in a wooded area near Redding, Pennsylvania. She had bailing twine around her neck. An investigation revealed that she had been strangled, dumped in the woods. The local newspaper, the Reading Eagle, ran a front-page story seeking information on Kane's death. In February 1990, about 15 months after she was killed, the paper received an anonymous letter from a, quote, concerned citizen with information that only the killer would know, police said. The letter writer also left his DNA when he licked the envelope. Not very smart. The DNA from the saliva matched what was found on Kane's clothing, and that was according to authorities. But years turned into decades, and police still didn't know who the suspect was. So finally, in 2022, that's when the Pennsylvania State Police used the famous genetic genealogy testing to identify the killer, a local man named Scott Grimm. And that was what law enforcement said at a news conference last week. So let's jump into the story that I was originally talking about, and that is the infamous unsolved murders in New Mexico, and that is the Las Cruces Bowling Alley Massacre. In this incident, there were seven people shot. This was by two unknown assailants. Now, the motive of the massacre was clearly robbery because $5,000 was stolen, but years have gone by and the case remains unsolved. Now, the victims of the bowling alley that night were the manager, 34-year-old Stephanie C. Senak, her 12-year-old daughter, Melissa Repass, Melissa's 13-year-old friend, Amy Hauser, and the alley's cook, Ida Holguin. 
Steve Terran, who was the alley's 26-year-old pin mechanic, and his two daughters, two-year-old Valerie Terran and six-year-old Paula Holguin, no relation to Ida, were also at the scene. Now, again, Stephanie Sinek died in 1999 due to complications from her injuries. Melissa Repass and Ida Olguin survived. According to the reports, at 8.33 a.m. after the gunman had fled, Melissa, who had been shot in the head, picked up a phone and actually was able to dial 911. In this call, she tells the operator help because, quote, one, two, three, four, six, seven people had been shot. Now, Melissa knew the address. It was 1201 East Amador. She was able to tell the operator that all the victims were in the business office and that it was on fire. Quote, please hurry. It hurts. I'm the only one conscious. I'm holding my mommy, she says. Franco rushed there, and even though by then he had years of law enforcement experience, nothing could have prepared him for what he was about to see. This is all according to the articles from the Las Cruces News, and it's pretty detailed stuff. Again, Stephen Taron... Paula Hogwin and Hauser were dead. The others were in critical condition. Quote, my first thought was, what kind of animal could do this to kids? And that was according to Franco. Detective Rose Marquez Mace was also one of the first responders. She initially thought it was a drill. Quote, as I went into the bowling alley, I saw a little girl, the six-year-old. And that's when I realized it wasn't a mock scene. I saw that she had soiled her pants and it was that that I realized. It was not a mock scene. Valerie Terran, the youngest victim, was still alive when authorities got there. She and the other victims were rushed to Memorial General, which has now been changed to Memorial Medical Center. Valerie unfortunately died shortly after being admitted. Senak, who would move out of Las Cruces after the shooting, as I mentioned, died nine years later from the injuries in the shooting. According to this article, the hospital was uh, quite a scene after the massacre. According to Anthony Terran, who was Stephen's younger brother, he was in the dorm room at New Mexico State University when he received a phone call from a nurse at Memorial saying he needed to get down there right away, but didn't explain why. As he rushed to the hospital, Anthony said many questions were racing through his mind. Earlier on the radio, he'd heard about a shooting, but didn't know it was about the bowling alley and didn't think about it while he was en route. I walked in and it was like time had stopped. Everybody kind of had a feeling they knew who I was. Everybody stopped and turned around and looked at me. And I'm thinking, what the hell? Did I not get dressed? Is my hair still screwed up? Why did everybody stop and is just staring at me, he said. As he continued through the emergency room, Anthony said he heard one nurse tell another that he had arrived and the second nurse walked up to him and asked him to follow her. Quote, she turned around and I grabbed her by the arm and I said, what the hell is going on? Why is everybody treating me like this? What happened? The nurse looked at him, apologized, and again asked him to follow her. The nurse led Anthony to an emergency room where he saw his sister-in-law, Audrey Tarrant. Anthony asked her what had happened. Quote, and she's trying to catch her breath between sobbing, and she just says, quote, there was, there was a robbery at the bowling alley, and they shot and killed your brother. And that was according to Anthony. Anthony then asked Paula and Valerie, 
quote, and she started crying even more. And she kind of caught her breath and she goes, quote, and they shot and killed them too, Anthony said. Right away, there's an investigation that kicks off. According to the newspaper reports at the time of this murder, So Melissa and Ida were able to describe to authorities that they saw two men. Multiple agencies were assisting in this whole investigation, and they set up roadblocks trying to contain these suspects. In the time, the suspect's descriptions would be a young Hispanic man, 29 or 30 years old, 5 foot 10 inches tall, weighing about 175 pounds. He had dark, wavy hair. Now his eyes were apparently light-colored, and did not have an accent when he spoke. There was an older Hispanic man, however, that was described as between 45 and 50. And Now, he was shorter, and he was only five foot seven, but he was skinnier, probably weighing 140 pounds. Apparently, he had salt-and-pepper hair. He did have an accent when he spoke. There were composite sketches of the men drawn in 1990 and in 2005 to depict how they might have aged. But other than the three initial survivors, there is only one other recorded witness, and that is Marquise Mace. Now, they said that he was across the street on a ladder painting a building. He would go on to tell police that he saw two men crossing Amador Avenue and heading south. Authorities received more than 100 tips which, when you think about some of these cases, 100 tips seems like uh, not a lot. This was in the aftermath of the shooting, but they still get tips to this day. But unfortunately, with an unsolved case that I mentioned in the beginning, none have panned out. Marquise Mays said that she believes the men laid low in the community for some time after the massacre. She also believes that they had help. Quote, I feel hopeful that someone is out there that does know a little bit or a whole lot about the case. And for whatever reason, they have withheld information. But I urge them to please come forward. Everyone needs closure in this. The community, the relatives, we need closure to this. We need to find out who did this, she said. Now, there were potential suspects in the shooting. One of the investigators believes the gunmen were professionals. And this was due to the weapons they used and how the victims were executed. And Franco said the shooting was possibly meant to send sort of some sort of message to uh, the people of the area. Now, police did explore a tie to a population of Cubans. Apparently, that did not turn out as well. This is an incredibly in-depth article. A lot of these passages will be read verbatim because it is super interesting to get on-the-ground reporting from a few years ago as well as from the actual event. Just something to keep in mind as you listen to this episode and you try to understand what was going on because what you really had was small number of people working in this bowling alley and you had a couple of assailants come in, basically shoot up the place, thought they may have killed everybody, and then set fire to the bowling alley to cover up their crime. When you think about that as just the basis of what this crime was really about, I mean, it was a robbery. A robbery that really only paid $5,000. But it was 1990. I don't know if they were expecting a huge windfall 
or if they had some inside information to make them think that there would have been a bigger take. But it seems like there's a lot of overkill in this situation where you have a freaking crew of seven people getting taken out by a couple of guys who are there just to rob the place. Now, authorities did also consider revenge against the owner, and that was Ronald Senak, who was also Stephanie's father. He was in Arizona the day of the shooting. What led us to think that the crime was related to Senak was his lack of cooperation, they said. And he said that there was more to it, and that was according to Franco, and that's what he said to the Sun News in 2010. The shooters were initially thought to be from Las Cruces, but there was information that they said that led them to believe they were from out of state and they were sent there to do a job. Now, that was according to Franco again. In an uninventful civil suit that was brought against Ronald Senek in 1995, Gloria Woods, that was Hauser's mother, said during the trial that Senek's lawyers filed her outside one day during her smoking break and offered her $30,000. She told the Sun News that... Quote, I got so mad in 2010. Quote, I said, why don't you slap me in the face? Not only no, but hell no. I'd rather have nothing than to take that. And I am not sorry I said that. It's about what's right and okay. We accept the responsibility. We left the doors unlocked. That's how those men got in. That doesn't mean bowling alley management wanted my daughter killed, but that's how they looked at it. And that upsets me because they were negligent and those men did go in through the unlocked doors. And maybe they would have broken a window and still gotten in. But that would have been a process where employees were alerted in some way. Verbatim out of the article. And again, there were some obstacles clearly in the investigation which were on purpose. You know, when people show up to a fire, guess what they do? They turn the fire extinguishers on and they try to make sure that the fire is out and this will destroy a lot of evidence and then of course you have the victims who of course need to be taken out of the fire zone and this will disturb any sort of evidence that may have been left of course you have to do all these things obviously some of this evidence was ruined in the process so they weren't trying to do it, but they were trying to save the lives of the victims. So there is no blame to go around. It is just one of those things where you have to do what you have to do when you respond to a fire. Nobody's to blame. It is what it is. We'd love to have that evidence. Absolutely. But again, they were so-called professionals, and that's what professionals would do, and that would be to disrupt the crime scene. There is a detective... Amador Martinez, and he has headed up the department's effort to close the book on the case. And he said that the ma if the massacre had happened today, detectives would have used, obviously, newer techniques to preserve the evidence. And of course, in 1990, investigators did the job they knew what to do. But to this day, investigators don't have a, quote, DNA profile of the suspects. And that's according to Martinez. What they do have, though, is a lot of fingerprints and a lot of old-school methods that don't quite mold into the, quote, new technologies, he said. The advent in technology, the difference in technology, it's at our disposal. We just have to find that right piece that will fit into that mold, that will fit into this new DNA technology, this new genealogy tree that we can use. We just have to find that piece, and I'm positive that we have it. I just haven't found it yet.
And that was, again, according to Martinez. So there you go. You have a lot of similarities where you see in the Amy Mahalovic case, they talk about that too, where we're waiting for the science to catch up with everything that's been going on. But that's one of those things where science is only so fast. And if you're waiting on science, then you're going to be waiting a while, unfortunately. Martinez did say that any new evidence that he does come across, he does send to a crime lab in Santa Fe. Quote, sometimes I'll send an item up to the lab for evaluation and they'll come up with a profile. So essentially, we've generated a piece of evidence from a piece of evidence. And then it's my job to go out and take care of what it is and to figure out what this person or who this person or why this person was involved, if there was any association even. The lead detective in the case said he spent hours going through evidence to follow up on the leads and even traveling out of state. He goes on to say that some months they get numerous tips and there's really no telling why or what the reasoning is, why people come forward, but they do. So in random months, I'll get inundated with them and some months are a little lean, he said. Around the anniversary, Martina said he usually gets a flood of calls. Quote, I'm grateful for that. I really am. It allows me an avenue to pursue new leads to follow because sometimes we get frustrated that we don't have as many leads as we need and we need more. Now, of course, the biggest question that remains is whether or not this case can be solved. Martinez, as well as Franco and Marquez Mays, neither of whom are still with LCPD, are optimistic that the bowling alley massacre suspects will be identified. In fact, Franco, who now works in the Dona Anna Assessor's Office, said he'd gladly go back to work this case for free. The relatives of the victims and the community need closure, he said. Quote, try to understand how those children felt when they saw what was going on. Like I said, they looked to us for guidance and for love and for affection. And to see someone doing that to other people close to them, what do you think those children were thinking? And if you know anything that would help us find these animals, who would do this? Please come forward, he said. Marquez Mace also made a plea to those with information to come forward. Quote, how can you live with yourself? It's been so many years. Think of the family that was left behind. Just come forth. Just get it off your chest. So, of course, as we know with all of these cases that we've covered, there's going to be some sorts of, uh, I guess, cloud that hangs over the city because... Any case that remains unsolved where seven people were shot, four that were murdered, it's hard to imagine. I don't think there's anybody out there that thinks this stuff is normal. Now, Marquez Mays said that she thinks about these murders often, quote, it doesn't stop. I'm sure it doesn't and hasn't stopped for the other detectives, she said. Now, since the massacre, Marquez Mays said she's only been inside the bowling alley about five times, even though it has been redesigned. I see it as I saw it that day, and I cannot forget that. I don't have a good feeling about going in there. It brings back some very sad times for all of Las Cruces. A bowling alley continued to be housed inside the Las Cruces building until June 2018, and that was when the owners of 10 Pin Alley shut the doors. The building has sat vacant since. 
In this incredible piece by Bethany Frodenthal from the Las Cruces Sun News, Anthony Tehran said he'd like Stephen, Paula, Valerie, and Amy, as well as Stephanie, to be remembered as people, not just a statistic. Hey, they went to the same restaurants we went to. They played in the same parks you did. They lived and they spent time in the stores just like you did. They laughed and they cried. They were part of the people who were part of the community. They're not a statistic. They're people that lived there who didn't deserve to be taken away like they were. And Stephen, who was a first lieutenant in the Army, had made a commitment to be a fall guy if it came to Anthony. Came to it, and that was according to Anthony. And that factors into his memory of his brother. Quote, I can see my brother. I look at his picture. He's looking at me in my eyes, and I can hear him telling me, you know what? Yeah, it sucks for all of us. But bro, do something about my daughters. Do something for my daughters. They did not deserve this, Anthony said. Of course, there is a reward that you can get at Crime Stoppers. And if you can provide any information, you can submit your tip anonymously. And that's through Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. You can also provide your tip online at nmcrimestoppers.org. This was an article from Bethany Frodenthal, and she can be reached at bfrodenthal at lcsun-news.com. That's a very interesting article, and she just did an incredible job of really telling the story of the investigation, the murder, the whole thing. And again, the case does remain active, and again, Amador... Martinez is in charge of the investigation and it's apparently really active. As they said, they're examining old evidence using new scientific techniques. You may be wondering, what does this case remind you of? And there is one case that I have covered and that would be the yogurt shop murders. And that's a crime that remains unsolved. I've done a few episodes on that case. And this was in 1991 where in Austin, Texas, where the workers of the store, there was four women that were killed, young women, teenagers actually, and they were also set on fire. So that was one of those things where you had some witnesses say there were two men there. There were people that thought that they looked similar to the suspects in the Las Cruces case. But again, you know, the victims were teenage girls. It was 13-year-old Amy Myers, 17-year-old Eliza Thomas, 17-year-old Jennifer Harbison, and that was a 15-year-old friend, Jennifer's uh, 15-year-old friend, Sarah. The girls were tied up and shot, which is, again, similar, and it was set on fire. For decades, they did work to find suspects, but they have come up short, just like in the Las Cruces case. There is a little bit of good news in this case, however, where there was a small sample of DNA found, and they are trying to use the newest techniques to find a match. What was the aftermath like of the Las Cruces bowling alley? Well, the building has been remodeled, and it basically is not what it was before. They have kind of... uh, 
moved on in that regard, but it's heartache for those families. And it is an incredibly hard thing for Turan to deal with. Uh, he lives in Mesa, Arizona. He does go back to Las Cruces to honor the memory of those people that were killed. Uh, he said to the paper that, quote, we've got to find them. He That was in an interview from the Las Cruces. He also said there have been so many leads over the years, and it all may take a few more of them, you just have to hold out hope. In early 1990, Tehran uh, was a 19-year-old student at New Mexico State University, so he looked up to his older brother, Stephen, for guidance and support, and he did sleep on his brother's couch. You know, it was interesting that they had a very close relationship. Quote, might have lint in his pockets and no dollars, but he would still help you out the best he could. As far as where they think the investigation goes from here, this is what they think actually happened. They believe the two men had entered the bowling alley between 8.10 and 8.12 a.m. People believe that they were there to clean up. Now, instead, they pulled out their guns and obviously ordered everybody into the office and onto the ground. But before opening fire, they did go furiously through the building, and they did finally find that $5,000 that I had mentioned earlier. Now, this was kept in a bag in the safe. So you kind of wonder whether or not this was an inside job. Holguin said in a 2000 interview, quote, they were looking for something in the cabinets. Holguin speculated in the interview that they might have been seeking a hidden cadre of drugs. Holguin and Senex survived the storm of bullets as they covered on the floor. Each of them struck three times. Repass, who was also wounded, lived Two, Amy Hauser was not as lucky, according to the article. Stephen Turan and his daughters arrived just as the gunmen were on their way out. Anthony Turan said it was unclear whether his brother put up a struggle or complied with the tire, with the gunmen's orders to lie on the floor with his daughters next to the other bleeding women before they too were shot and killed. Quote, they execute him, Turan said. The gunmen left the building around 8.25 a.m., and that's when they set fire to paperwork in the office. And again, this was trying to cover up their trail. And again, the smoke and water damage from the firefighters did destroy much of that forensic evidence, so we don't have a lot to go by. Again, we have the one witness that saw them fleeing on foot and splitting up on and running on opposite sides of Amador Street, and that was near downtown Las Cruces. Now, again, both were described as being Hispanic males. One was younger in his 20s or 30s, and the other one in his 30s or 40s. They weren't heavily accented, but they could have been carrying weapons. Apparently, these were uh, big guns. That's according to Turan. Basically, uh, this is just one of those cases which just uh, you're really left with a whole lot of nothing. I had a conversation with Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast the other day about a case that he is covering. And you kind of run into those same situations where you have a lot of hope that there will be somebody that turns around and says, hey, it was this guy or it was my brother's ex boyfriend's sister, I don't know, whatever. It just doesn't work out the way that you always hope it does, even though when it's a crime as horrible as this. But these people have gotten away with it for 32 years, so 33 years, 
or 32 and a half, whatever. And we're getting close to that point where technology's going to max out. We're not going to be able to do everything. I mean, I know that we're going to do, um, it's not going to max out, but it's going to reach a certain point where it will require DNA. Not everything's just going to be easily found. Like some of these things seem to be not saying that they are, cause I know these are extremely in-depth processes that go through, uh, many chains of command. So I don't want to discount anybody in that field by any, any imagination. So this is an extremely interesting case. It's unfortunate that there isn't a lot of evidence. They do at least have some suspect sketches, but as we know, those are not always the most reliable. So let's just uh, hope that maybe one day they will be able to find answers in this case. And then if there's a connection between the yogurt shop murders and the Las Cruces massacre, then that would be incredible because there are some similarities there in the region and just with the fact that it was a robbery and all that other stuff that is similar. So again, that wraps up this week's episode. I hope that you guys want to learn more about this case. If you want to do so, you can Google Las Cruces Bowling Massacre. That's pretty much what it goes by. There are a number of articles by the Las Cruces Sun News, the Albuquerque Tribune, and I use a lot of resources from newspapers.com. And again, this is just one of those cases where you just need to have a little bit of faith and hope that there is an answer. I mean, as I mentioned in the beginning of this case, a 34-year-old cold case was solved with somebody's DNA when they licked a letter. So maybe something happens like that, but we can only hope. So in the meantime, thank you guys so much for listening. And if you guys would like to follow me on Twitter, you can do so uh, with my username at Bill Huffman three. If you want to follow me on Instagram, you can do so at slow underscore burn media. And heck, if you want to donate to the show, you can do that with my Venmo at who killed. So Thank you guys again for listening. You know I drop new episodes every Friday. And in the meantime, as always, stay healthy and be safe. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Thank you.
I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now.